0: Casey Gardenia Libraries would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which this podcast was recorded. We wish to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening.
1: And we are back for 2022 with another exciting year at Book Matters, where we chat to people who write books and read books. From here in Australia and all over the world So sit back and get set for some great listening and reading recommendations On the podcast today, Janine chats to Sydney author and screenwriter Mark Laprell About his book The Secret Wife Which takes us back to the 1960s in suburban Sydney And Courtney talks to Mary Rose Cuskelly about her debut novel The Cane Which is set
2: in the cane fields of Queensland in the 1970s We hope you enjoy Mary Rose Cascali is a writer of fiction and non-fiction. Mary Rose has had essays, articles published in a range of magazines, journals and newspapers, including The Aged, The Australian, Family Circle, The Big Issue and many more. In 2016, Mary Rose was awarded the New England Thunderbolt Prize for Crime Writing Non-Fiction for her essay, Well Before Dark, about the disappearance of Mackay schoolgirl Marilyn Wellman. In 2019, Mary Rose's book Wedderburn, A True Tale of Blood and Dust, was long listed for the best day and Best True Crime in 2019's Davitt Awards. In 2022 Mary Rose has published her debut fiction novel The Cane which follows the story of the small rural community in the 1970s dealing with the fallout of a disappearance of a young girl. Welcome to Book Matters Mary Rose. Thanks Courtney, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. So congratulations on the success of your novel, The Cane. It's been really well received. I've read some amazing reviews about it and have obviously read it myself and really, really enjoyed it. Can you tell us a bit more about The Cane and how that novel came to be? Sure.
3: The Cane set in North Queensland. I grew up in Queensland too, but not in the area where kind of the cane is set. I was grew up in the southeast corner of the state. So I was a kid growing up in the seventies and there were a number of child and also uh, young women who were victims of, you know, abductions and murders in the 70s in Queensland. They were events that, you know, really reverberated through the whole state and I'm sure some of them through the country as well at that time. There was one in particular that really stayed with me and that was the disappearance of Marilyn Woolman who went missing in 1972. Her parents were cane farmers and she disappeared on her way to school, kind of into the cane. And her disappearance was never solved. And in fact, they only um, had a, a funeral for her in 2015 when a piece of bone that had been found some years after she disappeared was finally identified through dna as belonging so they were able to link the mitochondrial dna to her mother who was still living
2: it's fascinating isn't it what they what they can do now as opposed to you know 40 years ago 50 years ago Yes, absolutely And so because of
3: various things Mainly because her family have been so determined To keep Marilyn's case in the public consciousness In an effort that they will one day Mm. be able to solve What happened to her The case has kind of stayed, you know, in the public realm Because, you know, every now and again There'll be an article about it, you know It was 30 years after Marilyn went missing It was 40 years after Marilyn went missing And just recently it was the 50th anniversary Mm. And her family family, um, have quite successfully kind of advocated for the government, the state, Queensland state government to, you know, offer a significant reward for anyone who can give them information leading to, you know, the arrest of any perpetrators. Because it's something, because it, it, so it really lodged in me at that time when it happened. I was a country kid too, you know, kind of walking to school. Because of just that image of the cane, you know, it's so ubiquitous up there and it was just, so So it's a story that has stayed with me for a, a long time. And originally I thought I would write something, maybe like an extended piece of nonfiction about it. Yeah. And I began researching kind of around about 2014 and uh, I ended up writing an essay about Marilyn's disappearance and about kind of the impact on my childhood. At that stage, the family weren't... You know they didn't really want to participate in writing a book about Marilyn's disappearance, Marilyn's disappearance. So, with that essay, I thought, Oh, well, that's it, I won't, you know, I'm, I'm finished with that story. And I went yeah. on to write Wedderburn, but I just couldn't fully expunge it from my system. And I began to realize that a lot of the things that I wanted to write about I could do through fiction. And I, you know, I'm, I had always thought of myself as a non fiction writer, so it was a bit of a leap to write a novel. I was very fortunate, to have a very good editor, and she really helped me to structure and
2: revise
3: my original manuscript to what The Cane is today.
2: Yeah, so you are a non-fiction writer. This is your debut fiction novel. How, how difficult did you find it to jump from writing non-fiction to writing fiction? Like, is there a big difference in the process? Yeah, look, It was, I think, kind of
3: mentally for me it was quite a big leap because, as I said, like I I just had never really, it it was not that I'd never thought about writing fiction Mm. and, in fact, I had made an attempt at writing a novel that was kind of unsuccessful and, you know, still in my bottom, you know, my proverbial bottom drawer. So, you know, with fiction I just, you know, you have to make things up, Courtney. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and they have to kind of make, you know, you have to create a seamless world. Well, when you're writing nonfiction, you know, the world is there and you just have to write what is there in front of you. I mean, of course, there's shaping and, you know, you're privileging some kind of, you know, some stories and some details over others. But, you know, the stories there. Well, with, you know, fiction, it all has to be seamless and continuous. And yep. so in the end, I just began as, you know, every writing project does where you just try to find out how to write the particular book you're writing as you write it. And, you know, every book is different and every book is, you know, it is really a, um, a journey into how to write that book and all books are different to write. So yeah. So in, in the first manuscript, when I began writing The Cane, I was not thinking about it as crime fiction because, you know, crime fiction is, you know, it's very, you know, it's obviously a particular genre and it's got lots of, you know, conventions and, and I just thought, well, I don't, you know, this is, I just didn't feel like I was kind of skilled enough to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I thought I'll just, you know, I'll write it, as a kind of a coming of age story but when my publisher and editor got hold of the manuscript that I'd submitted they were just like listen it's a crime story you should make it you know conform to those crime conventions and it will be a much more successful story you know and I think they were right they identifying the things in the manuscript that I was that I felt were important to the manuscript, important to me, and to be able to say yes, they're all great. These are really good, but let's try and make that um, the the you know the the plot more kind of propulsive, and you know make it more I suppose commercially you know uh, to make it appeal to a, to a wider audience I guess. And yeah, so and, and I'm pleased that uh, she did.
2: Yeah, well, I, and I think you've still got those elements. I I very much felt that coming of age aspect I think that you are saying in the novel especially not just with Essie and Raylene but you know with with her mum Connie and all the female characters I think that still really came through really strongly so it, I think you balanced it quite well in oh, you me. know going with you know it, it is a traditional crime and I, I did hear you, you said you're an accidental crime writer which is ironic because both your published books are crime but yeah I think you, you balanced it really well and I quite I think I went into the novel thinking oh this is going to be crime you know traditionally but I I think because you did have that other element of that sort of that rural noir, that coming of age, um, it it did stand out as a bit different and I think I think that's why I quite enjoyed it. I thought, oh, this is something a bit different. It's not, you know, following along the same lines as all the other, you know, traditional crimes. So it was a nice, refreshing take, I think, on on it. And I know you talked about, you know, growing up in the 1970s and it was, you know, all those disappearances. But, you know, the story of a teenage girl going missing, it It really could have been written any decade. Was it purely because of your experience in your childhood solely or did you ever consider writing the novel in another era or in today's environment?
3: I didn't and partly, I suppose partly because I had those memories of my own to draw on, but also when I was uh, initially researching it when I was still thinking of it as a non-fiction project, I spent Mm. quite a bit of time in the State Library here in Victoria And I was, you know, going through newspapers of the time and not just for details of the reporting of Marilyn's disappearance but just to get a a sense of what else was happening in the world at that time and it Mm. really reminded me of what a kind of a vibrant, interesting era the 1970s were and even just things like, you know, the advertisements for, you know, clothes, like so, you know, men's jocks or... um, (laughs) (laughs) That had a very particular 1970s slant or columns about, you know, what to cook for dinner tonight or, you know, and letters to the paper, which was why, because you really got a feeling of what people were upset or cross about. you read the the letters to the paper and that which was why the Little Red School Book makes an appearance in in my novel because it was such it caused such an amount such a large amount of fuss back then and so it was and just things you know the Vietnam War was still going on you know Jermaine Greer had just written the female eunuch there was just all this kind of fuss and bother about all sorts of things and people were, you know, quite, well, you know, there was a group of people who were very concerned about the changes to, you know, sexual mores and the prospect of, you know, Gough Whitlam getting elected. And then there were other people who were really excited about these, you know, new opportunities for women and that women's role was changing. And so it was just this very exciting time, I suppose. And I, I had siblings who were quite a bit older than me. And I remember being and, you know, they were living in Brisbane and share houses and going to demos and things like that. And as a child, I kind of remember, you know, kind of envying their kind of exciting life and, you know, just loving the outfits. You know, my sisters would come home in, you know, wearing headbands and, you know, cheesecloth tunics and flares and all the rest of it. So so it just seemed like a really uh, rich vein, like that time, the 70s, just seemed like a really rich vein to mine for fiction as well. So
2: the two yeah. of them kind
3: of went together, I guess.
2: Yeah, and as somebody who was not born in the 70s, it was um it was certainly an introduction to that decade for me, reading reading the novel. And I think you're, the opportunity you get by writing it in the 70s is that, as you talk about, it was that, you know, really strong, that female empowerment, women empowerment movement was really picking up in the 70s. And so you got to, you know, write some really strong female characters who were in – An environment where there was, you know, blatant misogyny, racism and discrimination that, you know, for me, not being from that era, I had never experienced it on that level. So I really connected with those strong female characters that you have. But did you find it difficult to have to go back and revisit, you know, that blatant misogyny, the racism, the general overall discrimination that that was so prevalent in the 70s? Look, I, I don't think it was... Difficult so much.
3: I mean, and I have had some people say, "Oh, was it really?
2: <laughs> was it really
3: that bad?" I'm like, yeah, it was really that bad.
2: I'll take your word for it. <laughs> I, I have no idea.
3: <laughs> and so, no, so I, I, I didn't find it difficult, and I didn't, you know, and, and I don't feel like I've exaggerated any of that. So I, yeah, you know, I grew up, um, like I said, I grew up on my parents were farmers, and I went to boarding school in Toowoomba, which was the nearest largest. Um, you know, which was a big town nearby. So we had, you know, lots of country kids came to that school, but also kids from, you know, PNG, whose parents were government ministers in PNG and things like mm. that. And we had, you know, Indigenous kids at that school. You know, now I look back and I think we were just so, like we, meaning the white kids, we were so yeah. kind of ignorant and kind of not very curious about their lives. And it wasn't just us. It was like our teachers, like the adults around us, There just seemed to be no curiosity. And so I just kind of, you know, I I was, I'm kind of regretful of that ignorance that I had as a young person. So I suppose I just wanted Mm. to, you know, go back and explore that a bit more and just kind of acknowledge it, I suppose.
2: So the novel jumps between multiple perspectives. So you've got everyone from, you know, 12 year old Essie telling her perspective all the way up to the senior resident of Arthur. Why did you choose to approach the novel? through so many different points of view? Uh,
3: look, it was just, it was intuitive, I guess, and it, it probably speaks a little bit to my inexperience in fiction that I, you know, rather than going with one perspective, I, mm. I decided no, know, I'll just do a whole a whole lot. Um, But I think what it was allowed me to do was just show the way, like an event such as that, such as Janet, who's the girl who disappears in the novel, what an event like that does to a community and all three, the sections and all the stratas in that community. So, you know, Essie, who's, you know, about 11, knew Janet because Janet would babysit her through, you know, Janet's friends and boyfriend and just the other adults and teachers. So just the way, I guess, Janet's disappearance rippled through that community allowed me to do that. but I do have to say I have <laughs> I did have more characters whose were kind of you know whose perspectives I had, but that was one of the things my editor kind of said to me, let's yeah. you know, <laughs> let's pull that back a little bit. And I did really enjoy writing all those different voices, and I guess mm-hmm. they serve. So most of the novels told in third person, but Arthur's voice, who you mentioned, he's he's first person, he's yeah. first person. Yeah. And Arthur kind of operates a bit as a um, as a Greek chorus. So he kind of yep. can give the reader a broader view of Koala and the rest of the community and not just Koala in the present day but, you know, the history of what had gone before, a bit about the people. So that was – he was a way that I could do that without having to be too schoolteacherish about it. So just a way of and, – and introducing some of – it was a way of talking about things like the fact that South Sea Islanders were blackbirded mm. to work in the cane fields in the 19th century and just to kind of touch on you know what was there like as i said because the cane is so ubiquitous well what was what was there before the cane and um Arthur's his his wider perspective on things allowed me to do that
2: yeah and i think because everyone had a different relationship with Janet you got that different perspective of how everyone was reacting to it. You know, Mm. the kids were like, oh yeah, she's gone. You know, I didn't feel like it impacted them too much. And I guess that's traditional, you know, with kids, they don't understand that wider concept. And then the parents sort of went the other extreme of, you know, really that, concept of you know watching the girls and being very conscious of you know they're not allowed to go anywhere on their own what would happen it was it was interesting to you know jump between especially Essie and then her mum Connie the two perspectives there was quite interesting because you're jumping from one extreme to the other So how did you, what was your writing process? Obviously, it would have been different from writing nonfiction. Did you, with the multiple perspectives, did you write each one individually or did they just sort of come out as the story was being told?
3: I'm not one of those writers. Like I don't start at the beginning and go through to the end. I kind of jump around.
2: Yeah, I think most writers do that. It's just readers who think that it starts and ends the way we read it. Yeah,
3: so I think it was kind of, essie who came to me first yeah and and with it was that her imaginings or her dream of what it would be like to be snatched by something humor like whether it's a monster or a something almost supernatural that she imagines is lurking in the cane and so I think that was was Essie who came to me who came to me first so I think I began with Essie and then and like I said I do just kind of tend to jump around a bit and then try and after and then try and you know meld it all together in a something a little bit more seamless hopefully and Arthur's voice was actually who is that um you know kind of almost is that first person narrator Mm -hmm. originally that was kind of three or four different voices within the town but then you know I made the decision along with the editor that that would be better as as one continuous voice so Arthur kind of came together came quite late in terms of the process, I did start the novel in 2019, so before COVID. But it was yep. in, in 2020, in those lockdowns, that I really, in in retrospect, <laughs> the lockdowns of 2020 were very useful to me from a writing mm. perspective, and because it was it was over winter as well, so I would just kind of hunkered down and and wrote most of the manuscript then. So yeah so for me the yeah the first year of lockdowns was okay the second year
2: not so much but um yep <laughs> I think, yes, I think we all like, okay, we'll do it. And then it just kept going. I was like, ugh. that's the, I guess that's the other thing, because you, you did talk about that you grew up in Queensland, but you didn't grow up near a cane field. But, you know, the novel is very evocative. It's very descriptive of the cane field. So how did you go about, like, if you couldn't, I imagine in good times you intended to go up and, and, and see and look at the process of the burning of the cane, but I'm guessing that didn't happen due to no, lockdowns?
3: I, I have spent some time. Not you know not a lot of time but I had gone up mm. for a research trip to the Mackay region when I was still thinking about it, it as non-fiction so I'd been up there uh and it had I think the crush was just starting so you, you could smell molasses yeah. in, in the air and there's only one place in Queensland well in all of Australia that still burns the cane and that's the Burdekin region around air which is further north from Mackay and they have a festival every year which is timed around the first night where they light the cane, mm. and so I had all these plans to go yes. up there, which of course did not happen. So I had to. I, I have a close friend who grew up in Mackay, so I spoke to her a bit yeah. about, and because when she was lived when she was a kid too, they were still burning cane, and and she was and she was talking to me about how, you know, she remembers these embers and ash kind of drifting down into their swimming pool and things like that. So that was really helpful. And I also, uh, you know, I made contact with the, you know, Cane Growers Association and managed to, you know, get the number of a a man who had farmed cane, grew growing cane in the 70s. So I had a chat to him and YouTube. YouTube is your friend (laughs) when you're you're researching. So yeah, so I just, um, all those different things, I just tried to, you know, meld together as As well as I could. Uh, Actually, I'm going up to Townsville for a festival later in the year. So I'm hoping, you know, maybe I'll see some cane burning then.
2: Yeah, yeah, well, I, I don't know. I've never seen it, but I certainly felt it was very evocative reading that section of the book and all the fires burning. And obviously, it was a very tense moment as well, because, you know, it's fire. But, you know, your novel joins, you know, a string of Australian rural novels that are hugely popular at the moment. What do you think it is about the setting of your book and those books that are, you know, attracting readers so much? Yes, it's uh, it certainly
3: seems to be a bit of a golden age for Australia crime and particularly crime set in you know rural and regional areas maybe it it, is you know Australians are largely an urban population and so I think I don't know whether these crime novels set in rural areas give readers a chance to kind of experience kind of very remotely through fiction but it gives them an insight into those uh into those other areas of Australia that they might not know as well as we like to think. Like we like we we like to think that oh you know the bush and the outback is something intrinsic to Australians, but rea- in reality we're all kind of yep. living in big cities. Well, not all of yes. us, but most of us are living in big cities, clinging to the coast. So maybe that has something to do with it. And I think also just Australia does have this wide variety of landscapes. And there's something about whether it's their wildness or their remoteness or the danger of them or the beauty of them. You can make a character out of them almost. Like yes, my novel, the cane is like it's a man-made landscape, Mm. but it has a very, you know, definite presence in in the novel. And I think a lot of these rural, uh, these crime novels set in rural areas, you know, they have that idea. Like you know, the landscape is such a crucial part of the novel and you know there's also this. I think there's also just in terms of telling a story if if a crime happens in a rural area where there's not many people living then you know you really have to investigate to find out who did it because there's not going to be very many witnesses so
2: yeah yeah For me, it, I, I love these books because I'm, I'm creating a list of all these places because I love it when I can go and I'm like, oh, yes, this is where it was set. This is, you know, I feel like it connects me with the book a bit more when mm-hmm. I can actually one day get to that place and see it and, you know, maybe one day I'll, you know, I'll be going and be able to see a cane bean beam burn and then be able to say, hey, I remember. Yes.
3: You know, in, in any novel... If there's a really well-developed sense of place it really grounds that novel yes. as well like you feel secure like yeah. as a reader you kind of feel secure in the world you know you know you you feel like you know where you are yes um and I think that's perhaps an aspect of it as well
2: yeah. And as you say, we're very, you know, Australians, we're very much sticking to the coastals and we're in big towns. So it exposes us to other things that we're well, within our reach in our country that we can, you know, connect with, which, you know, after the last few years, I think a lot of people will be going out and visiting a lot of these small towns and other places in Australia that, you know, they haven't probably thought of going to see. Yeah, um so what's next for you in terms of writing? Are you thinking another fiction novel or will you venture back to nonfiction? Are you gonna stay in crime? Look, at the moment
3: I'm writing another novel. I've been a bit distracted since the canes um publication. So I'm a little bit Yeah. Uh, I have to I'm planning on taking a week and running away somewhere and um just by myself so I can get back into it. So uh it's A novel but this time it's um it's got an urban setting and it's more contemporary I don't think it's crime but
2: (laughs) (laughs) you didn't think that last time either (laughs)
3: so maybe it'll turn into crime yeah so I'm still I'm kind of still deep in the weeds with that one I would like to get back to non-fiction at some point, but I don't have a particular project in mind. But yes, at the moment, the plan is to write another novel. Excellent.
2: We shall eagerly anticipate that one as we're, you know, devouring the cane. Now, we are a community of readers here and we do love to hear what people are reading. So is can you share with us one book that you've read recently that you loved? Oh, uh, Look,
3: actually, I read... Emily Bittos' *Wild Abandon* recently. And oh yeah, really loved it. So she's also a Melbourne author, and um, it's quite a recent release. It's set in the oh in 2011, I think. But and about a young man, you know, who comes from the country, has moved to Melbourne, has had his heart broken, and runs away to New York, and then after mm. that, finds himself in this kind of midwestern. Um, tiger king fantasy not fantasy it's kind of like this terrible (laughs) (laughs) it's not it's not terribly amusing what happens after that but it's this very uh it's beautifully written These very in some ways it goes against kind of what is almost fashionable in contemporary writing she has these gorgeous lush sentences yeah so I really recommend Wild Abandoned by Emily Bitto it's a great story and just to really um I have Sons. So I really love seeing kind of tender young male characters in novels and this one is really lovely. I've also read Mark Brandy's The Others quite recently, which I really enjoyed too, which is, I guess it's kind, you might call it rural noir as well. And it's not exactly a crime novel, but it's a little bit of a crime novel, but it's mm-hmm. told through the perspective of a child and Mark really nails that um, young kid's voice really well. So yeah. there's two I'd recommend.
2: There we go. Awesome. Well, and if our readers want to connect with you online, what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, look, I've got i uh, – I'm on Facebook,
3: Mary Rose
2: Cuskelly, Author,
3: and I'm also on Instagram at Mary Rose Cuskelly. And I have a website, maryrosecuskelly.com.au. dot mm-hmm.
2: Awesome. Thank you, Mary Rose. The Cane is an atmospheric and stunning piece of Australian rural noir fiction. It's a must-read for lovers of crime and Australian rural fiction. Both Mary Rose's books Wedderburn and The Cane are available from our library, but you can also borrow Wedderburn as an e-audiobook from our BorrowBox library, and The Cane is available as an e-book from both BorrowBox and Libby libraries. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mary Rose, and sharing more with us about The Cane. Uh, We wish you every success with it, and we look forward to seeing what you bring out next
3: oh thanks Courtney I've really enjoyed speaking
2: thank you
1: Mark Lamprell is a writer of novels and children's books published in 16 countries and 12 languages, including the novels The Full Ridiculous and A Lover's Guide to Rome. He also works internationally as a writer and director in film with movie credits including Babe Pig in the City, My Mother Frank, Goddess, A Few Less Men, and Never Too Late. Mark joins me today on Book Matters to chat about his new novel, The Secret Wife, which is set in Australia and takes us on a journey from 1961 through to 1972 in an irresistible story of love, sacrifice and friendship. Welcome to the podcast, Mark.
4: Well, thank you very much, Janine, and what a lovely welcome that was. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Look, I've just finished reading your new novel, The Secret Wife, and I have to admit I absolutely loved it. Oh, it took me right back to my childhood as I grew up in the 60s and I recognised so much of what you wrote about. Congratulations on a great novel.
4: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, um, I get, uh, you know, I also grew up in the 60s and uh, was kind of inspired. Well, we're by
1: showing that. our age yeah, here, yeah, aren't we? we, are. we? <laughs>
4: We are, Janine. Are we, are we both sitting down? I think we need to.
1: Yeah. I think I'm sitting down anyway.
4: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I grew up in that era too. And I, I, it, it just, writing this novel, one of the things that struck me was what a rich window of time that was from roughly from 1961 to 1972, which is when the novel is set so much happened the sexual revolution happened the second wave of feminism happened space travel happened you know it all it, it was just this amazing time of change the likes of which we've not seen and hopefully we will see again soon but we haven't seen since then so i thought it would be a great no context to set a story in you know
1: Oh, that's great. Now, for the benefit of our listeners who haven't had the chance to read your book yet, would you be able to tell us basically what your book's all about?
4: It's about a friendship between two ordinary but extraordinary women, really. Um, and they live in a suburban subdivision and they become best friends. One of them, Edith, is sort of quiet and clever, but she's quite agoraphobic. The other, Frankie, is kind of vivacious and out there. And um Frankie expresses a desire to work, uh, but her husband won't let her. So Edith hatches a plan to secretly run Frankie's household for her while Frankie goes out to work. And in the decade of the 60s, sort of under the cover of Dark in Secret, Frankie builds basically a a business empire and Edith becomes Frankie's secret wife. So that's sort of really what the the story is about, really. And Yeah. Yeah. It's about sort of the transcendent power of pulling together. Not neither of them could have made much of an impact by themselves, but once they got together, uh, you know, they they changed the world.
1: Now, look, my childhood home was very similar to what you described in Edith and Frankie's neighbourhood. They were all cookie cutter homes. The only difference being that the house might have been flipped or a slightly different facade or a different colour brick being used. And I grew up in Mordialic and that was also a new area at that time in the 60s. And it was very typical that the women stayed home and the men went to work. So making friends in that era was difficult as the the women usually didn't work and most didn't drive. And of course, they were very house proud because that was their job, let's face it. And I, I had to laugh that Frankie's husband regularly donned the white glove and went around checking for dust on a weekly basis could you imagine if that happened in this day and age
4: yeah no it just never <laughs> would I mean it would ju- can you imagine anybody even trying it uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, they'd immediately be executed uh, it's but that sort of behavior and part of the reason why I wanted to write this novel was you know within our lifetimes that sort of behavior happened and was acceptable and yet really we have changed so much I feel like we despair quite often about You know, particularly in this day and age and now with the Ukraine happening and just so much and climate change and and me too. And we despair so much about the shape of the world. And yet, in fact, one of the things that I wanted to do with this novel was to remind people that we actually have come a long way. You know, that a lot of good stuff has happened. It's not all terrible, you know.
1: Oh, no. But look, it was a simpler time in those days yeah. too. And there was nothing wrong with that. When you think of all the balls you have to juggle these days, you know, just to get out the door and go to work and cook meals and look after the family and everything. In that day and age, it was, it was more cut and dried and it was simple. And I don't reckon people suffered from stress then as much as what they do now.
4: That's for sure. I think there was a clear delineation of roles. And I think that was both a blessing and a curse. But the blessing yes. of it was, as you say, um, you knew what your job was and you did it, and you weren't thinking, "Oh, could I be doing something better?" Or you know, what, you know, you, you just, you just the, the opportunities weren't there. You just did what you had to do, uh, and right. and I think that uh, that made life, as you say, simple and simpler and mm. and much sort of and easier on one level. Another, of course, it also made it very frustrating because your your opportunities were far less, particularly if you were That's female. Right.
1: Oh, definitely. And it was interesting that religion play, played a big part in Edith's life, even to the point that she was initially very concerned that her new neighbour across the road might be a Methodist or a Presbyterian. And, you know, she went to mass regularly and even read the Catholic Weekly magazine. I didn't know there was a Catholic Weekly
4: magazine. Oh, yes, there was. It was, <laughs> uh, you know, I grew up in a Catholic household, as you can probably guess from the book. And, um, yeah, that uh, that magazine uh, you'd buy it uh, every Sunday after mass. And that was sort of, that was the newspaper that hung around the house more so than the, you know, you'd probably get the Sun Herald. The regular that, one. Yeah, the regular ones. That was the one that kind of was, was most referred to really it was, it was such a secular kind. I mean, it was such a non-secular world really, you know, mm. I, I, the, I grew up in Sydney and in the suburb where I grew up, we were the only Catholic family in a Protestant street. And um, oh. that was a big deal. Uh, we, our neighbours had a swimming pool and um, uh, we weren't allowed to swim in their pool because we were Catholic. And, and, but we were allowed to stand and watch their, their, their kids. <laughs> but the funny thing about that was, Janine, is that we just thought that was okay. You know, like it was completely normal. It was like, well, of course we can't swim in your pool. We're Catholics. Oh, you know, oh, my goodness. The things that you accept as a, as a kid. My, my father subsequently built what he called the ecumenical swimming pool which was slightly larger <laughs> and longer, and everyone was allowed to swim in that. Um, it's
1: interesting that you knew the religion of everybody that lived in the street.
4: Yeah, yeah, amazing. Like, no, these days no one would care. But my my no. sister married an Anglican sort of in the early 70s. And at that time, st- I remember, still remember the discussions around the table about her marrying out, in inverted commas, you know, and <sighs> how would we cope and what would the children be and would they be Catholics or would they be Anglicans? And, you know, like, any of that mattered but it did at the time it really did
1: yeah and look the other thing is too when Frankie did get the opportunity to to work you know and either stepped in and cleaned her house and cooked for her and so that Frankie's husband also known as his nibs would never find out it was so hilarious in parts to see the extremes they went to to keep it a secret
4: yes yeah which they you know They had to because they they, they didn't know what the consequences would be of him finding out. I mean, eventually we we do find out in the book what happens, but they didn't know. And they would do things like put the car up on blocks and run it backwards so that he couldn't (laughs) see that the odometer had changed. So she'd put no mileage on the car. You know, there were these rituals that they'd had to enshrine into their lives to kind of make it okay but of course that's the thing I guess when you live in an era where there are so many rules like that you enshrine deceit into the into the process as well because nobody Mm. of course can obey all the rules so you've got to get find a way around them you know
1: yeah gee they did well to keep it going for as long as they did too
4: yeah yeah quite ingenious yeah
1: yeah, And I'm impressed that you managed to fit in all the noteworthy events during the 60s, including the man on the moon, Cuba, the Pope dying, the Vietnam War, just to name a few. And, um, of course, Edith was convinced that whenever a significant event happened in the world, it was a sign that something good or bad was going to happen in her life as well.
4: Yeah, uh, that, that came uh, from her very early trauma of her sister dying. In, the, in mm. We go see that in a flashback in the book and that. Uh, that happened um when the uh, as the Hindenburg crashed, i think from memory and uh, yep. um uh, and uh she then forms this idea that she 's this sort of conviction that she 's shadow boxing with history, so every time something big happens as you say she she 's waiting for what that will happen was a in sign and it did you know that the thing about it of course was it proved itself correct you know it it it, it may have been magical thinking in one level, but in fact that's what did happen in her life. And it did. My point of that is, I suppose, that we are, in fact, we are all defined by the times in which we live, by the historical yeah. events that surround us, you know. Uh, and uh, she would have been a, probably a very different person with a very different fate um, had she been born today, you know. Yes. But uh, her fate was was shaped by, by the times and the history that surrounded her. And... Um, yeah. Uh, and that was her sort of kind of slightly magical belief, but it was actually quite a true true one too
1: oh, look at the end of the day, it was just a brilliant story about female friendship and the lengths that people will go to help each other and I just love the dynamics between the two of them they were they were very opposite but very similar in some ways too
4: yeah I think they had i think they had a lot in common well there was mm. it was interesting um like you know there's sort of kind of a a love story through it, really, where frankie uh, where they sort of fall in love with each other and it's not a it's mm. not it 's not sexualized but it's but no. it 's a very deep and intense the, the friendship becomes more than a friendship it is a sort of a, a kind of a love affair um, yeah. that they 're having, and um, I think that sort of was about them recognizing the similarities in each other you know they 're just sort of a kindred spiritness to them yeah. both.
1: Yeah. now let's move on just for a sec about your writing and your film work now what came first it's almost like what came first the chicken or the egg were you a writer before you went into film or vice versa
4: i, I went into film work very early straight out of uni really um yep. uh, and i worked for kennedy miller the production company that makes sort of oh, you know the mad max films now and Babe: mm-hmm. Pig in the city and um, back in the day, they were doing a series of miniseries. They did Bodyline and Vietnam with Nicole oh, Kidman yes. and all those sorts of things. And um, George Miller happened to see a documentary I made while I was at uni about integrating um, disabled kids into mainstream schools. And he contacted me and said, we want to do a series of documentaries here at Kennedy Miller that are making ofs. Every time we do a miniseries, we want somebody to make a documentary about the making of the miniseries. Okay. So I joined Kennedy Miller to do that, really. And it was a fantastic, it was like going to film school and being paid for it and following around these incredible directors like George Miller and George Ogilvy and Phil Noyce and uh, Chris Noonan uh, and getting to ask them about, you know, why they were putting the camera there and what, what, what this aspect of the story meant and all that kind of stuff. And
1: so you didn't study film at uni. You did something different, did you? I,
4: I did communications at uni, so uh, it, okay. it had a film aspect to it. Um, uh, uh, but it was also I also studied literature. I really I, okay. I knew that I wanted to kind of tell stories, and I wasn't quite sure how that would express itself. So I just wanted to study other storytellers, really, and and uh, mm. and study novels and films and just look at how people constructed stories and so after time at Kennedy Miller I, I kind of I got a bit frustrated with the thing about documentaries is you can't tell people what to do they you've just got to observe them doing it and I wanted to begin to tell the story myself you know I wanted to be able to, okay. to be able to construct it and so I started writing then that's sort of how I, I guess I, I, I got into that aspect of things and ended up writing Babe Pig in the City with George and um started writing other movies as well I worked on the screenplay of Contact I adapted the novel oh. um uh, the Carl Sagan novel Contact uh, George was going to direct it uh it never got uh well it did get made but not our version of it never got made but um so I ended up you know entering sort of storytelling from that point of view and then novels really came later really novels have only come in the last 10 12 years Okay. Mm.
1: And how, I suppose it's very different to screenwriting, to writing a book too, because um, you've got to, well, you've got to imagine the actors, they've, they've got to tell everything, you know, in just their words, whereas in a book, you know, you can read a backstory, you know, yes. and things like that. Yes. So it's very, very different. Do you prefer, what do you prefer one or the other or both? I,
4: I do like them both. They're both very different experiences. Mm. <clears throat> I started writing novels because Because I find the collaborative nature of filmmaking and writing screenplays very depleting. You get notes from, if you're not the director yourself, you get notes from the director, from the producers, from studio executives, from marketing executives, from the distributors, from the exhibitors. Everybody's got something to say about that screenplay you've written. And of course, the actors, the stars. Mm. Um, uh, I was telling somebody recently. I once, I quite recently, have got notes from a, a big star who I won't name. About I've got eighty-eight pages of script notes. Oh my god! And the, the script <laughs> is only one hundred and ten pages long. Um, oh. Yeah, and you have to you have to acknowledge those things and take them on board. And so you're often left clinging to the original little kind of kernel of the idea that you had that inspired you to write in the first place and it's it's it, it's exhausting uh doing mm. that and the, the thing that I love about writing novels is it's just me and the page you know yes and um eventually of course I, I, I'll, I'll consider my readers and I'll consider the wise counsel of a of a of an editor. But, editor but it's a much simpler creative process it's a much purer thing of my voice and I'm not having to sort of think about all this other stuff as well so um when I sort of discovered novel writing really it was a bit like a (laughs) (laughs) ta-da sort of the clouds parting and going ah this is the way forward and I I do enjoy both still you know it's a it's a great thing collaborating with a whole team of people and making a film but Mm. it's
1: It's very hard to keep everyone happy probably too isn't it
4: Yeah, yeah. And, then, and you
1: feel like you've you've lost your creative
4: yeah, control. Yeah, and your capacity for excellence. I try never to do that, um, but with a with a novel you don't you never have to do that. But with yeah. a with a film sometimes you kind of do, and that's sort of that's painful. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And what's next on the agenda for you? Do you have another novel in progress at the moment? Yeah,
4: I do. I'm I'm writing another novel called Things I Need You to Know. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it's set in uh, Australia again. And, um, uh, I'm also working on a couple of, uh, screenplays. There's talk of a, an adaption of my novel, The Lover's Guide to Rome. Um, oh, so, that's
2: good. Yeah, so
4: I'd love to do that because it's, in, of, of course, entirely, well, not entirely, but mostly set in Rome. And, um, okay. that would be a lovely, uh, gig to work on. I said to the, uh producer on that one i don't care if i'm you know uh just sw- if i don't have a gig writing it or directing it i just really want to be able to sw- swan about on the spanish steps for Oh, Just wouldn't that would be lovely? So? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, and it's really good. There's been so many books are being adapted into either film or or television yeah. at the moment. It's fantastic. Great. It really is. It, it's better to do that than regurgitate. You know, they're they're remaking a lot of things, and I think, oh, you know, don't don't spoil it. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah, you know, because sometimes the, the remaking isn't as good as the original. Yeah.
4: Uh, I think that's often the case it's um uh but there is such a hunger for content you know there's so many platforms now where stories are being told you know, and you look at you know uh netflix disney all yeah. of those all of those things you can subscribe to now, and they all need content uh and so it's, um, I mean, it's sort of a good time to be a storyteller, really, because, you know, oh, that's great. You, know you can offer things and, and have them made, which is, you know, yeah. the point. Oh,
1: well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for you, because I know it's a very long process, yeah. you know, from the time you get option to then, you know, to you've got to get a producer and a director and a screenwriter or whatever. Then you've got to get the funding. That's usually the hardest part, exactly, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so we'll keep our fingers crossed that we see a lover's guide to Rome on one of our screens in the future. Yes,
4: please do. Thank you. Everybody <laughs> cross your fingers now.
1: Yeah. I will. <laughs> now what sort of books do you like reading? And what are you reading at the moment?
4: Uh at the moment I'm uh I'm reading um well I've just actually finished. Um, so not quite reading, but um uh, uh Catherine Heyman's um memoir, Fury. Um okay. I don't know if you've if you've I've heard of, of it. it.
1: What's it roughly about? It's
4: about a time in her life, because Catherine Hayman's a, a novelist and, you know, she's got
2: mm-hmm.
4: eight or nine novels published now. It's about a time in her life where she went, she was sexually assaulted and um, oh. uh, and sort of seeking justice was ignored. And it, it, it's, uh, it's a parallel story between this event happening and interwoven is sort of uh, how she saved herself, which is she she went up to Darwin and she she got a job on a fishing trawler and worked on a fishing trawler. And so it's about her finding redemption on the trawler despite all of the injustice that happened to her. And uh, it's an extraordinary story of um, resilience and reinvention Mm. and not being defeated by all the terrible injustices that happen to you, instead transcending it. And she sort of... She's, Catherine has become the hero of her own life and okay. uh, it's a very inspiring... Kind
1: of. oh that's good it's so yeah. nice to read a memoir too you know sometimes the content can be a little bit disturbing depending on what you're reading but you do get a glimpse into that person's personal life yeah, yeah i that's, think
4: that's really good. i think generally most memoirs if you're inspired to write a memoir it's generally not because you've had a boring life you know what i mean
1: no uh, you've got to have something to write <laughs> about don't yes, you and
4: that's generally pretty horrific um you know uh yeah. so i think most memoirs have got you know, gasp moments to them. And this is sort of one of them. But generally I, you know, I, 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 I enjoy kind of, uh i'm mostly a, a kind of a, a fiction and I'm a, i have very kind of small c catholic tastes in fiction i'll read anything really put a book in front of yep. me and you know people ask me what my favorite book is well my favorite book is the last book i've read really you know like I yeah just, uh, i just love books yeah
1: because that's that's the one that you remember yeah yeah
4: exactly
1: <laughs> it's, it's a thing at a, at a certain age, age this the... is true yes <laughs> that's right three months ago what did you read oh yeah i read the title what was it about i've got no idea i've got to look up on goodreads so that i can read the blurb again and then it'll come back to yeah. me. <laughs>
4: yeah. But it was lovely, I assure you. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. um, look, The Secret Wife is a splendid example of female friendship and life in the 1960s and I highly recommend it to readers of women's fiction and books about friendship. It's available to borrow from the library in paperback or as an ebook through BorrowBox. Thanks so much for chatting to me today, Mark. I wish you every success with The Secret Wife and also The Lover's Guide to Rome.
4: Oh, Thanks, thanks Janine. That's very kind of you. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now let's hear what our library staff have been reading.
5: Hi, I'm Beth, the CEO of Casey Cardinia Libraries, and I'm reviewing The Shadow House by Anna Downs. The Shadow House is a twisty, turny thriller. I did find it a little hard in the beginning to decipher that the characters were operating in the same place, but on different timelines. When the penny dropped though, and I realised that those timelines would intersect, and then the story moved forward as one, I really got drawn into this story. I love a good thriller, and these characters cross the line we all fear, the line between a normal life and one that goes completely off the rails. These characters have had difficult lives, bringing them to this point, and the frailties and war wounds they carry expose them to greater risk of derailment. I highly recommend The Shadow House. Two mothers, two sons, One Worst Nightmare. Available in the adult fiction section at several of our library branches or on ebook through BorrowBox.
6: Hello, my name is Alicia and I'm the Health Promotion Officer at Casey Cardinia Libraries. Over the Christmas period, I read the book This Is How It Always Is by Laurie Frankel. Wow, this is a book that everyone should read. It will open your eyes, it will make you laugh It might make you want to cry, but most of all, it will encourage you to walk in other people's shoes. Claude is five years old, the youngest of five brothers and a lover of peanut butter sandwiches. Claude also enjoys wearing dresses and dreams of being a princess. When Claude grows up, Claude wants to be a girl. Claude's parents, Rosie and Penn, will support Claude to be whoever Claude wants to be. They just aren't sure if the world is ready for Claude so Claude's family finds themselves keeping a secret. As Claude and Poppy navigate their way through school, toilets, friends, swimming, and sleepovers, the secret start to work its way out until one day it simply explodes. People who enjoyed this book also enjoyed reading The Last Thing He Told Me by Laura Dave and Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reid. You can find the large print version of this novel at the Endeavour Hills Library.
0: Hi, I'm Erin, Marketing Manager at Casey Cudney Libraries. Today I'm reviewing Honeybee. Honeybee is a brilliantly written book that covers so many topics as the story centers around Sam Watson. Sam has challenge after challenge challenge thrown at him and he's trying to work out his own identity. Sam comes into the world and struggles with his single mum whose family do not approve of her having a baby. The characters in Honeybee are developed in such a beautiful way, all of which are very different. Each character you fall in love with for many different reasons, and each becomes the support Sam needs to survive. Young parenting, suicide, transition of identity, drugs, crime, it's all covered in this book. Sam's resilience under the circumstances is inspiring. I couldn't put it down, even with two kids in tow, I was looking forward to every spare second to read this book. Jump onto our catalogue now and reserve your copy. It's also available as e-audiobook and e-book. I give this a 10 out of 10.
1: If you enjoy listening to Book Matters, we would love you to give us a rating at your favourite podcast provider. That way, other book lovers will be able to find us too. For more details on the books mentioned in this podcast, as well as information from the library, head to www.cclc.vic.gov.au or visit our new Facebook group, In A Nook With A Book, where you can let us know what you've been reading. Until next time, this has been Janine and you've been listening to Book Matters, a CCLC podcast for people who like to read, made by people who love reading. Goodbye.